Welcome to Trading for Keeps. This is Brian. And this is Michael. Today, we've got a special guest, a penny stock trader I met about a year ago at the conference when he was you know, getting uh, mobbed, essentially, by a thousand different traders that wanted to know his secrets. At the time, he had just crossed $100,000 in trading profits. Uh, today, we're recording this right at the end of September, and he's creeping up very close to $500,000 in profits. So in this one-year time frame, he's made $400,000 trading mainly penny stocks. So welcome to the podcast, Kyle Williams. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. It's awesome being on. Yeah, well, we really appreciate you coming on. Um, we always start the podcast. We usually start and finish the same way, but the middle, you know, who knows what could happen in there. But what what brought you to the market? Can you tell us your first transaction with the market? Yeah, so well, I guess I guess if we want to go way back, uh, my first transaction was probably when I was 10 or 11 or 12, when I was around eight or so, I, one of my best friends growing up was getting an allowance from his parents. And so I was like, mom and dad, why don't I get an allowance? And so we made a deal. If I do like, you know, clean the dishes, you know, clean up the dog poop and like take out the trash, I would get like five bucks a week. And they were even smarter in saying, you know, if you can save up, you know, 20 weeks of allowance and not spend anything, and get up to hundred dollars, we will then put that money into a mutual fund for you. And at, you know, nine, 10 years old, I have no idea what that is, but they just really dull it down and be like, okay, you'll make X percent more a year. And I'm like, sure. Make more money. Like sign me up. <laughs> uh, so they kind of put that on autopilot for me for, I mean, and, and if I had like extra birthday money or Christmas money, like I'd put that in too. And so really, since I was early, I had this mutual fund, but I didn't really, I totally forgot about it until I was like 20 when I found trading and like realized uh, that this mutual fund is like kind of at least somewhat correlated to that, like in terms of markets and stocks. Uh, so it really wasn't until I guess from starting the mutual fund to then being like 2021, when I try to found trading and realized that's what I wanted to do, uh, around that time, you know, and it really, I guess the pinnacle point that got me to, to start thinking about it was I watched the movie, the big short, yes. we're talking about like 2008 financial crash. And I was like, I almost, like I said, I, I kind of forgot I had the mutual fund. And so when I saw that movie, I realized, did I, did my mutual fund lose like 50% like everyone else? And I, you know, I found the mutual fund I had and I looked at like the performance. And I was like, oh yeah, like I definitely did. I didn't even know. I'm like 12 years old, just like living life as a, you know, having a childhood and then don't even realize it. Um, so that kind of what opened my eyes to realize like, I need to learn this. And that's what led, you know, down the rabbit hole of, of studying stocks here and there and then finding penny stocks and then finding Tim Sykes. And then from there it was the rest of his history. So you mentioned that, you know, you managed to actually save up your allowance. I know a lot of kids aren't that disciplined. I had a little bit, one of the, one of my most early side hustles was um, my family, we would get like Christmas candy or Easter candy Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't eat my candy. I would save it and then wait for my brothers and sisters to eat all of theirs and then sell it to them a couple (laughs) weeks later when they didn't have any candy. So yeah, you know, and I, that was kind of my first, my first side hustle, but so were you you always a good saver then? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it was maybe my parents like really instilled at me or just me personality wise, but yeah, I mean, I almost to a fault where I actually had to like, I think one of the coming of age things I had to go through there was learning, like, it's okay to like buy a $20 dinner on the weekends. Like it was, (laughs) I was very, uh, one-sided for a very long time. And I realized like, no, no, like what's the point of me like hoarding this money if I'm not going to use it? So eventually like getting more mature, I realized like, no, like it's meant to be spent. So for sure, I eventually started buying things here and there and enjoying, you know, nice things. So. All right. So obviously, yeah, holding a mutual fund for 10 or 20, 
10 years was it or so? Yeah, yeah, about 10. Once once I was 20 and I had found trading, I pretty much realized that that mutual fund wasn't even perf- performing with the market. It was like always a few percent below. Uh, and so I cashed that out and then I, that was the money I started to use to trade with. And then, you know, software fees, all everything kind of that really funded everything uh, for trading. Okay. So where did you really start getting into trading then? What brought you to actually discovering, truly discovering the market? Was, was the big short the movie there? So yeah, the, the big short was kind of the first like pinnacle point. And then I, from there, I just said, okay, well, let's read like a, a basic book. So I, I read, um, what was it? Uh, Panera stock market for dummies. Yep. And in that book, yeah, there was like a little section about penny stocks. And in that, in that section, it was like the, all these disclaimers of, you know, penny stocks are sketchy. They're, they're this, they're that. And I, for me being this naive, you know, person doesn't know much. I'm like, why, but why though? Right. Why, why do penny stocks have to have this little like disclaimer Why well, they're just lower price stocks, you know? And so then I Google here and there and then, you know, Tim Sykes being kind of like the face of penny stocks. He's like one of the first people that came up and then watching so many YouTube videos of his over weeks to probably a month or two, I finally realized, you know, and the, I think the good part about me was when I found Tim Sykes, because most people, when they find him, they see the Lamborghinis, they see the, the extravagant trips. And it's like, this guy's, you know, just lifestyle marketing. It's, it's probably a scam. Luckily for me, I, I didn't see really any of that in the beginning. I really saw all the videos that were just very technical based and like, this is how I make money and this is how I've done it. And so watching enough of those videos, I was like, oh yeah, I can, I can learn that. You know, I didn't really see the flashiness. I really saw the the passion of trading and technically what it was. And so then from that, what the, that's what got me to really want to join uh, the Tim Challenge in like, uh, I think it was the end of June, 2016. Okay, so, so June, 2016, you discovered that, did you go straight into the Tim Challenge? So uh, yeah, I, I really contemplated for probably a week or so, like what should I, you know, what level should I join? Because of the, all the, you know, the tiers he has and his services. And something that kind of got me to just take just take the jump was that I was in college at the time. I was a sophomore in college. And so I realized, okay, I could pay one extra like semester of fees to learn something for a whole year, potentially find a whole new career path that I'm already way more into than what I am in, in college. Uh, and I just said, yeah, let's, let's just do it. You know, cause I had, I had the access money from the mutual fund that I wasn't now using, wasn't growing anymore. Didn't know where else to put it. So I kind of, it was, wouldn't say it was a no brainer. It took me a while to get to it, but once I like rationalized it in my head, I was like, yeah, let, let's go for it. So. so just, just quickly interrupting. I know we've talked about it in a previous podcast, but can you remind us what is the, uh, that, that challenge? What, what actually happens there? Yes. So, so Timothy Sykes has multiple, I guess, levels of education, right. For, for what suit best suits your needs. And his, his top service is called the Timothy Sykes trading challenge, where you essentially buy a whole annual subscription to pretty much almost everything he offers, uh, all his DVDs, all his video lessons, um, live trading webinars. You can ask him questions live trading webinars from other top students of his, like Tim Bertani, who's also made a DVD that you get in the challenge. So it's really his, his, um, just full package of everything he wants to teach you and thinks you need to know for the market. And then it's up to you to then take that information to really watch it all. Cause plenty of people get it. And then are like me, a perfect example was when I first joined, uh, the first month or two, I didn't watch anything. I so lazy. I just didn't even, I was like, oh, okay, great. I have this, I have bought this course now. Let me just trade. Uh, and so that of course led to me losing money. So after, after losing that money and kind of having a wake up call, I was like, no, I need to actually study this material. So then I totally devoted now six, you know, sometimes even 10 hours a day to really so you, going through all this material. Did you actually not You you found the education material first and then started trading afterwards. Is that kind of how it played yeah. out then? So the, well, yeah. So, I mean, I watched a bunch of the free YouTube videos that like technically showed me how he made money and how it yep. worked. And it's like, all right, perfect. Sign me up. 
So then once I got all the material, I kind of just watched like one hour of a DVD and they said like, where's the, where's the money-making part coming in? So I kind of <laughs> just immediately jumped into like opening an E-Trade account and, and buying a stock with like no software, like totally blind. And then that was when I realized, okay, no, I need to actually have a software. I need to have charting. Uh, I need to watch these DVDs. Uh, and so then, so it was like a little bit, a little spurt of trading, trying to just jump right in and then realizing, no, no, I need to study first. Certainly. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I just, I've always kind of find it interesting how that progresses. Cause I traded for a couple, well, probably about almost a year on my own. Uh, but I was in a crazy, you know, 2017 crazy bull market there mm -hmm. where anything you bought just went up. So it was super <laughs> easy. And then all of a sudden 2018 hit and I, you know, cut my account in half on a single trade. And that's actually what I found Tim. Cause I go, well, obviously I don't know what I'm doing here. You know, I think mm -hmm. there was a lot of dumb luck to build me up this far, but then if I can lose it all, you know, I can lose half of it in, in one trade. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty significant. So, okay. That's really good. That's good. to, I guess just, just kind of see the progression there. Um, mm -hmm. So, so 2016, you started trading. Um, you were, you were into the education program. How did, how did it go for you? Uh, so the, like I said, the first few weeks to months led to a lot of losses. Uh, and then, I, I never fully stopped trading, right? I always tried to, you know, as I was trading, would watch a DVD, try to try to like let it go together. At least that's how I have to learn. I, I rather not watch a bunch of stuff and then never really apply it right away. So in, in some cases that maybe brought on a little more losses than I needed to, I could have maybe waited a little longer to really start trading, but I did continue to trade with very small size, you know, to while I was learning. But it wasn't until seven or 2017, the very beginning, where I had finished all of the DVDs. So that I think there were like 10 to 12 of them of all like every topic, you know, main topic of trading you probably need to know. Uh, I finished all those DVDs. And at that point I thought, okay, great. I like finished the bulk of this course. Uh, I should be good to go. But that was just like not what happened at all. Uh, the first like two months from, from uh, January to February, 2017, uh, I lost like every trade I took. I think it was like 15 trades in a row. I just could not win. Wow. Uh, and so at that point I, I really took a step back and I said, okay, let me just stop trading completely. Like finally, I said, okay, let's really stop trading and let's figure out what I need to do here. Cause this is clearly going to lead my account to go to zero at this point. And I'm down, like my account's down to like 70%. I had a 6k E-Trade account. It was now down like below 2000. Uh, so I was, I was on the edge of, of really just losing it all. And, uh, that's when I finally decided to just really wait, like don't, don't even take a trade, like just watch. Uh, and that's when around, I don't know if, uh, if, Fortunately, maybe some of the listeners might not know, but um, Fannie Mae, the, the huge trade that Gertani made like over 200 grand on in one day. Uh, Sykes has like multiple video lessons and blogs about it. If you just Google it or YouTube it, you'll, you'll come up. But uh, essentially that, that pattern happened again on the same stock in February. And so when I saw that, you know, amongst me, era, in the midst of me taking like this break and not really trying to trade, I saw it and I was like, this would be a trade to take, right? If, if there's any trade I should be taking that would like lead to like a profit, this should be it. And so I took that trade only about like a hundred shares of like this $2 stock. It went up 25 cents and I sold. So I made like $25, but this is when E-Trade had $10 commissions in and out. Yeah. So after that I made $5 and I was, $5 doesn't mean anything, right? But I was like ecstatic. Cause I was like, wow, I finally made money after like, you know, 15 trades in a row of, of never making a single dollar. Uh, and so that was a huge turning point for me to realize like, it's not about just taking, it's not about the idea, the idea of trading and just taking random trades to see if like this will go up or that will go up. It was the idea that I need to have a, like a sound specific strategy and a setup like that panic that happened on Fannie Mae 
to repeat that over and over again, not just on Fannie Mae, but on multiple stocks that would ultimately like lead to a, a positive, you know, expectancy of profits over, over multiple trades. Uh, so that was, that's really what a huge training point for me that really pretty much, it was the bottom of my account, right? That was the, the low. And from there, it was just slowly, you know, breaking even for a month or two, finally, you know, making 20 bucks, 20 bucks here, 50 bucks there, occasional big win of like a hundred bucks. And, uh, and from there, so the dip buying was the first strategy. I finally realized I wanted to learn how to short sell as well, because some of the stocks I was buying, dip buying were very extended on the, on the, in terms of a daily chart. So I learned to short sell as well. And so those two strategies really got me to come from, you know, down in the hole of 4,000 back to break even uh, for about between, this was between now, you know, March, April of 2017, all the way to December of 2017. So for that rest of the year was me just kind of grinding it out and really making back what I had lost in the, in the beginning. That's great. And so it, it sounds like you traded pretty random at first, realized it wasn't working 15 losses in a row. That's, that's gotta be rough to take mentally. Right. Yeah. 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 And then, it was, uh, or it, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, I remember sometimes like, you want to like pull my hair out, you know, like I just, like you think just even taking random trades, like it, or treating it like a, a casino in a way you think you'd get your random win to keep you coming back. <laughs> but yeah, 15, you know, six weeks in a row, 15 losses in a row. I just, I, I had to stop. I had enough. I was like, this is not fun yeah. anymore. So, yeah. So what made you want to try to, I guess, exploring into shorting versus your, your previous pattern and, and how successful were you at, at the beginning there doing that? Yeah. So, so I guess even prior to, prior to me taking 15 losses in a row, I was attempting to short sell a little bit. Like I took maybe a random short sell here and there just to test it out. But ultimately overall, my win rate on like my whole trade trading in general was like 20%. So I was really not winning at all much. But then once I took those losses in a row, I was okay, step back. I found this one dip by pattern that has me going long. Let's work on that. Uh, what attracted me to it was that uh, I quickly learned that the bigger trend or the bigger picture in small caps, which, which is what I was trading, like that most of them fail. So it's what it's not really, it's really irrelevant whether I'm there or not. These companies may spike hundreds of percent over three, four, five days, but the, the hype never lasts. And at some point it, it comes back down to reality. And so I realized there, there's a overwhelming trend and edge in betting against these. It's just whether could I time it correctly? Because a lot of these companies, like I said, that I was dip buying, were the companies that had just run multiple hundreds of percent, but now the reality had set in and I was just looking for that quick little, like uh, once the panic was over that bounce. And after that, they would continue to fade even lower. So I, I quickly learned if I could time it correctly before I panic dip on them and just actually be in the panic, that was going to be very beneficial. And, uh, and the, the analogy I make is I think learning a new setup is like learning a new language where, the first language is going to be super difficult. And I, I guess this is a bad analogy for me to use because I don't even know, I barely know a little bit of Spanish from high school, <laughs> but but just the analogy of like learning that first language is very difficult, but learning the second one might be more easy because you've learned that process of how to learn a new language. And so once I really, I wouldn't say perfected, but once I understood how to dip by correctly and, and be profitable with that, it was a much shorter learning curve to then apply that same process to then short selling, even though it was a different setup it was still the same. Like, okay. I need to have a risk level. Uh, I need to have an entry level. You know, this is the type of way I should time the trade. This is how I should enter. This is how I should exit. So all that kind of was already pre-planned. And now I just had to fill in the blanks with a new setup. 
No, that makes a lot of sense. It basically was about kind of position sizing, risk management, mm -hmm. and adjusting each one uh, kind of per the uh, per the strategy. Right. Um, yeah. What about this? Is something I've noticed recently because I've kind of I'm at my I'm mastering my one pattern right now, mm -hmm. and I've noticed that some months it works much better than others. Do you have you seen that? How do you adjust for I guess just the different market environments that we're in? Yeah, 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 totally. And so, and so some people will, and I, I've had made, I've made many references and videos to me learning this dip by pattern as as my first setup. And people sometimes sometimes ask me after the facts over like social media, uh, you know, would you still use that strategy in this market? And sometimes I have to tell them like, no, I wouldn't, unfortunately, because it just it's not as maybe popular as it like just like you said, some some months, some seasons the the setup doesn't show up as much now it does still show up uh i think i, I took the same panic dip i traded i think like last week or two a week or two ago so it still happens but right certain certain seasons it happens less and so i think part of being patient is very important where it's okay not to have it happen all the time and and being patient at least like worst case scenario is you don't trade at all and you're break even right the, the last thing you want to do is force trying to make a trade happen that isn't the setup and you read the losses so I would either a stay incredibly patient, which does suck, right? But it's better than losing money randomly. Um, or I would then take the time to try to learn a new one. Now that doesn't mean totally blow the old one, right? You still want to have that as your focus. And if you see that happen, like in it during a trading day, that should be the, the focus. But if it's not coming up, right, uh, watch more video lessons, um, start tracking a new setup. Um, it's it's uh, yeah, it's easier for me said than done because it does take a lot of work. But I just think. I just think going back to randomly trading, right? Trying to just tinker here and there without really consciously thinking about, okay, what should another set of work versus just, I think the stock will go up or I think the stock will go down. Uh, I think that would be the worst case scenario to do that. So, so how do you get a new, I mean, you probably have several, I'm seeing your, uh, your profit chart here. You must have a few different patterns that are working for you pretty well yeah. at this point. How, what's mm -hmm. really your process about developing a new pattern? Do you do a lot of journaling? Is it do you back test? I mean, what? How do you go about uh, actually coming up with that new pattern? Mm -hmm. So a lot of a lot of the setups I do trade now are very aligned with uh, the uh, Sykes is one of the Sykes DVD called the Penny Stocking Framework, which pretty much goes through the psychological phases of almost every kind of hypeish runner. Like it's not even it's not even that small caps. It happens a lot of this, a lot of these times in small caps, but it really happens anywhere. Really, I mean, it happened in Bitcoin. It happened in Tesla. It's just very rare for it to happen in much larger uh, markets like small, large caps. So it doesn't really happen too often, but it can. It just happens quite frequently in small caps. So a lot of my setups revolved around that because it's you know step one through seven, and I think I trade about four, three or four of those steps. So that DVD was huge because that really kind of gave me a, a, a already a list of setups I could potentially try out and learn. But in terms of learning, like, yeah, trying to be creative and think of a whole new one, um, I have done, I wouldn't say a back testing. I'm not very technical savvy to back test, but forward testing. So if I know, you know, I've seen this, this particular thing happen in the stock and I want to be creative and like, okay, does this repeat itself? I would then forward test and, and look for any new play for the coming weeks and months to see if that would happen. Uh, and so, for example, one is um, an overextended gap and crap, which is something I've seen. So there's, there's regular gap and craps that, stock isn't doing anything for months gaps up you know 50 100 and people love shorting that on the first green day to like if it fades i'm not really particularly good at that i don't i'm not it's just not my personality to, to make money on that type of pattern so i'm not good at it but there's another variation of it that i kind of 
showing up to the market every day. And I guess to answer your question, showing up every day, you kind of can see things that happen. And then for there, like be curious, but like, oh, I just saw that happen today. Does that happen again? Does that happen multiple times a day or, or multiple weeks in it or multiple days in a week? And so what I did is I realized some of these stocks that have been running two or three days in a row, sometimes on the top, the very top day, it has a massive gap up, like the biggest gap up it's had in the entire run. And so then I started tracking that. I said, okay, does that gap up lead to even bigger run or does it fail? And there's certain indicators that you can track over time, you know, the volume, um, what's the open, what's the, where's view app at, um, where's the high of day, where's the low of day. And you get a huge sample size of, I would say at least 50 to hundred times that happens over the next few months. And you can start to maybe look for patterns, look for statistical you know, edges. Uh, that's probably the biggest thing that I do to try to tinker with a new, new strategy or new setup. So is that a lot of journaling then, I guess, as you're front testing it, you're journaling it and, and, and do you start with small positions and once mm-hmm. you kind of have proof of concept, start to scale up? Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of Excel, Excel, like, you know, uh, columns and rows of, of all this data. And then, yeah. So, so initially, initially I will track without trading it. Uh, but I think this is a good lesson to to mention is that just because you have data on a setup showing that you can make money, it's then now about, can you trade it profitably? Like, can your personality handle it? Because for example, like I tracked the regular gap and craps, the ones that just go up one day and fail. I tracked those and found, yeah, you could be profitable trading them. But then when I started taking small size and I started trying to make it work for me, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't figure out I couldn't, I wasn't too much of a, I wasn't enough of a computer to just handle the edge itself, right? My own biases and my own uh, personality came into play and, and I couldn't make money. So it's one thing to track it, but then, right, it's very important that you then start eventually trading it with small size, whether that be like a hundred shares or a hundred dollars worth of, of stock and, and finding out, can you now put that edge to the test and, and replicate that edge with your own, you know, discrepancy and your own, you know, bias, um, perfect example is like multi-day breakouts. I know multiple, tra- multiple traders who are very good at multi-day breakouts and make a lot of money from it, but I, I have tried it and I can't, I don't know. I think it, it's mainly the patience play part of it. I, I can't be patient enough to, to kind of long these stocks for multiple days at a time. And I end up boredom selling, I end up selling out of, you know, fear or losing more money. And all of a sudden they, they keep rocketing and they keep going up and I'm like, Oh, well I missed that one. And that's happened multiple times. So it just, one of those things where you have to really learn, you know, it's like, it's trading is an art and a science. It's a science to know that, okay, this setup works. It's the art to find out, okay, can I trade it the way the science tells me to trade it? Well, that makes a lot of sense, actually. So are you primarily a day trader then? Are you mainly trading on shorter time frames? Cause it sounded like maybe the longer time frames don't work so well for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I would say majority, almost probably 90% or more of my trades are, are intraday with, with between 30 minutes to a couple hours. Uh, I am naturally much more patient on the short side than long side. There are been short trades where I can hold them. I can swing them short for a few weeks to sometimes, I think the longest has been like one or two trades where I've held for like a month or two. Uh, but yeah, longing wise, I mean, I, I can't even hold a long for, for a day and a half. <laughs> I don't, cause I think it's, it's different. Like I can hold the long if it's like a large cap, like an Apple. Cause I, I trust Apple and you can go on their balance sheet and they're, it's great balance sheet and everyone loves them. But it's like, if I'm holding a company that's, very speculative and, and it's all hyper revolved around it. You know, I just, I get like sick to my stomach. Like I know how this usually ends for like 95% of these companies. So like holding long for a, holding the stock long for a long period of time just makes me very uneasy. 
So, so just quick question. So I've been I've been looking at your profitly while while we've been chatting, and so mm-hmm. it seems like you play certain stocks. Like you'll do quite a few trades on just one particular stock, you know, and you'll go long and short on that particular stock, you know, multiple trades. I, I guess mm-hmm. maybe just curious on your thought process. You know, do you? I guess do you become really familiar with it? You're you're seeing how that's moving, or or what's the the idea of just doing so many trades on one stock there? Yeah, totally. I when this is funny you should mention that because in the beginning of of my trading career, I thought I thought it was very odd to trade a stock multiple times. I thought like, okay, I should only trade it once. And once I kind of nail it or I make money or lose money, like that's my one shot. And maybe because that was like, well, I was under PDT and I only had so many limited attempts. But yeah, as I've evolved, I realized, and as I got better, so when I, once I got really good at short selling and that became the majority of my profits, I think learning how to short allowed me to become a better long trader as well. And so once I find a ticker that really fits the framework, right? The, the psychological like steps it takes, I kind of now all of a sudden, I wouldn't say hundred percent know how it's going to move, but I, I have a very good read now on how it should move. And so, right. And especially in this market, there's many times where I've been able to go long a little bit on the way up. Cause I know I've seen the hype so many times now where I'm, I'm a little bit better at recognizing it. And then right. Once the hype's over, I'm then now prepared to, okay, let me, let me try to nail the short. Uh, and then once the short comes and the panic comes, I'll try to dip by it. So it's like, it's really this like long, short, long, short kind of re- pattern that I'm able to really execute on the the set of set or like the particular stocks and setups that happen in that framework um, category, I should say. So, so just out of curiosity, it seems like you've been really successful this year. It's it's almost like a, you've had a parabolic you know curve in, in, in yeah, how you've yeah. been doing. Do you think that's just? I mean, do you think it's attributed to the market conditions a lot? Of you know, just there's a lot of in hype trains, or do you think it's also just you've gotten more experience, or or is it maybe a combination of the two? Yeah, I think I think it's a combination too. I so like I said back to when I was, even though I was very frugal to start up and really didn't know how to spend a lot of money. Even now, that that is still my personality. Where out of all of the profits I've made, I've spent very little on really anything. I've tried to keep it as much as I can in my accounts for the reason of of compounding growth. That I just know if you know if I keep more money to trade with, I'm going to naturally make more. The bigger my trades get, and the more I put money into a trade. Um, but yes, this year in general. The market has been very much more hotter. So, in terms of experience, right? I, I definitely feel this year I've I've gained a lot of experience where I'm I'm very trading very well. But also in terms of the market conditions, right? There's been more plays this month this year than I've seen in my entire career. Now it's only been four and a half years, but just even hearing other veteran traders like Sykes and and other people t- say like this market's the most busy I've seen in in a decade or since like the dot com bubble, you know. Uh, so that alone is certainly without a doubt been a factor to allow me to more opportunity, you know, more um, liquidity and volume to take some bigger size on some better plays. Uh, totally. Yeah. So it's a little bit of both. And just out of curiosity, are you, are you trading pure technicals or do you actually, you know, read a little bit of blurb about what, what is this, what is this company actually doing? Or, you know, what's the profile of this company just for curiosity? So you know what you're, what you're trading. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would, I'd say it would be like maybe an 80, 20 or 90, 10 of technicals versus fundamentals. So technicals for me will always be the priority just because I don't want to get too biased in reading the fundamentals and, and, and because the last thing I want to do is, is fully like develop a story about the fundamentals and then totally believe in it or totally like perfect example for a short seller for like me, I could read a company and they have no revenues, you know, no cash in the bank. So they have total, total crap, like worst, worst, the worst companies, but then they keep going up and they keep going up and they keep going up whatever story they have. The last thing I want to do is to be attached to the, those fundamentals like this company's worth zero, they, they suck. And I just hold to my short and then I just get screwed. So I do want to acknowledge the technicals to know 
or the, the fundamentals to know what company I'm dealing with. But at the end of the day, I want to really focus on the, the technicals because that's going to allow me to stay safe in the trade, to manage my risk, and to ultimately time it well to be able to be there safely and, and profit, you know, so. All right. So you mentioned, you did mention Tesla there. Uh, incredible stock, right? Being such a, yeah. hard, such a large cap, um, you know, we, we don't get into Elon Musk or anything like that. <laughs> Everyone's got their own opinion on him. But I think what a lot of people miss is Tesla has been squeezed over and over and over again because of kind of the exact things you just said, because people get so attached to that Mm -hmm. balance sheet. Um, Short squeezes. First off, you know what a short squeeze is, right? Have you been caught in one of those? Can you tell us kind of, would you mind telling us exactly what a short squeeze is first? We've never talked about that before. Mm -hmm. And then kind of tell us how you deal with that. Have you been caught in those before and how you've dealt with those? Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, so a, a short squeeze is so basically the how a short sale works of short selling is a broker, your broker that you use, will have shares of some. So say say you guys own a stock long, you own Tesla long, and you're not going to sell it for years, right? You're you're okay holding your bank or your brokerage account. Your broker will acknowledge that and say, okay, we're going to take your shares and lend them to a short seller who wants to sell them because I'm. To short sell, you have to sell something first that you don't own. So I go to my broker, me being the short seller, saying, I want to short you know, 100 shares of Tesla. They say, great, we have those shares. They loan them to me for a fee. And now I get to sell shares I don't own. I sell them. And when I'm ready to exit is when I buy back. I buy, So I sell first, buy second. And so if you have enough short sellers who are short the stock and they all buy together, now there's this huge, massive amount of buying pressure that isn't even longs buying. It's it's a bunch of shorts trying to exit their position, uh, and so when that happens, it's called a, yeah, it's called a short squeeze because all these shorts are kind of really piling on top of each other, trying to get out, and the stock is now rocketing against them, and they're doing it to themselves because they just want to get out. And so, yes, go ahead. let me jump in there too and just say that also, if you get so underwater, like say you shorted Tesla, and you know you but you only had so much in your account. And once your account goes against you so much, your broker, they reserve mm-hmm. the right to buy you back in and they don't care what price you get. So no. if they say, yeah. oh, your account's now at zero, they're going to buy you back in and they don't put you in a limit order. They put you in a market order. And if you get a, a large amount of market orders coming in from the brokerages, from short sellers, everybody else, a buy is a buy as far as the market's concerned. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, and that's, I just want to make sure we really hit on that because it's like not only can people voluntarily try to get out but people can get involuntarily bought back in and the brokers like i said they don't care what price they they get for you (laughs) no and i like i'm glad you brought that up because that makes me think of another thing there's there's two ways you can involuntarily get bought in one is right you've you've gone too big and now the stock has gone against you so many times the broker's like hey we're not gonna let you owe us money like we are getting you out whatever price to save you and us uh that's one way I've never, thank God, I've never gotten bought in that way. I've never, I'm never that aggressive, thankfully. Um, another way though is, say we're back to the, the Tesla example, say you all of a sudden hit your broker with a surprise and call him and say, hey, I, you know, the hundred shares of Tesla I own, I want to sell those. So all of a sudden the broker's like, crap, a short seller has those shares. So then a short, that the broker would come to me and be like, yes, you, you know, we, we let you, we let you have those shares, but we need them back. And so that's happened to me before where it's like, I'm not ready to exit, but they need those shares back, whether regardless of my position. So they just, yeah. And they don't care what price you're out. Like they'll, they'll buy you in right where the stock is. So that's, that's another way that's happened. 
I did. I um, actually had never heard that before. I didn't know that that could happen. I'm not. I'm, I'm a long biased trader, so mm-hmm. that's really interesting. So they just buy you in, whether you're at a profit or a loss. They do a market order yeah, on you. If, yeah. So it's it's very. I wouldn't say it's random, but uh, some brokers can let you hold short for weeks to months. Um, some, if the if the borrows are very very, um, the supply is very low, and, and the people who are long on the other side want their shares back. I may only be short for two or three days. It's like the T plus two, T plus three kind of rule where they can guarantee, the good brokers can guarantee you to be short at least two to three days. But after that, if the long wants his shares back, uh, they'll call you up and be like, listen, we need those shares back. We're gonna have to buy you in. And it's happened before where I've been down, you know, maybe 10, 20% on a, on a swing kind of short idea. And I, I have no control over it. I just have to take the loss because they need the shares back. Now, sometimes the shares might pop, might pop up again and I could reshort and try again. But again, it's it's I leave it up to chance sometimes, unfortunately, that I have to risk that the shares will still want to be there and that the longs won't want them back. Just like, sure. just, like, just like curiosity, because I, I also don't pr- typically short, but is there is the bid, bid ask spread about the same on a, on a short or is it that it is on when you're longing? Yeah, yeah. It really all depends on the, the long, whether you're long or short. It doesn't really matter. It's more so how liquid is the stock that you're trading. And if the stock is liquid enough, uh, shorting or longing, you're going to get the same bid and ask spread. Yeah. Interesting. And have you ever thought of, I mean, I know you get short squeaked, but have you ever thought about like options trading or, you know, buying puts or, or, or something like that? Um, I've, I've had a few friends be like, kind of nudge me like, Hey, try this out. And I, I just maybe eventually, but it's one of those things where I just, this strategy I'm doing is working so well for me. I don't want to necessarily spread myself too thin, but you know, maybe in the future, but for now, yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't looked too much into it. Sure. So. So, um, but I, I guess back to yeah, back yeah, to the, short, the actual short squeeze. Uh, there has been times where, um, right, a stock has gone rocketed up, and I'm short, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what's happening? And and it's very easy to uh, freeze up because I've been there, right? And unfortunately, part of like paying your dues is to be in that position at one point and realize and experiencing it. Because now, instead of freezing up, I usually can recognize it. Okay, this is where I froze up last time. I can't do that again. So uh, it's very difficult, but at the same time, you have to, unfortunately, there's two, there's two edges of the sword. I can either fight it and be stubborn, which is probably the worst thing you could do, or you can kind of unfortunately give into the short squeeze and kind of join the shorts of trying to get out. Because unfortunately with a short squeeze, sometimes you just don't know how high it's going to go. And so the last thing you want to do is hold and hope and just hope you can handle it. And so unfortunately you're joining kind of the panic or you're joining the squeeze itself and pushing it up. But at the same time, it's like, you got to protect yourself at the end of the day. So times I have been caught in short squeeze, you know, I am down way more than I want to be down, but it's like, this thing could send skyrocket even higher, you know, and more shorts want to get out just like I do. So you got to get out as quick as you possibly can, unfortunately. No, that makes sense. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, this year, 2020, we've had Kodak. Oh uh, yeah. KODK, which, mm-hmm. you know, you, you don't get a move like that. That's not a short squeeze. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, S SPI just last week, just recently, just last yep. week. yeah, it was a, an incredible move. And it was funny. I saw even people on Twitter talking like what, what kind of idiots still buying here at 35? I was yeah, like, no one somebody is, yeah. that's in the hole bad trying yeah. desperately to get out. So yeah, it's the shorts getting out there. For sure. I think I, I think that's a good point. I just wanted to kind of talk about the short squeeze. I actually I consider myself a bit of a short squeeze hunter mm-hmm. on the long side of things. So uh, you know, just I, I a lot of times buy the overextended ones, but when they just keep going, I go, I know they're shorts. I know they're shorts just dying to short Let's this thing out. because it's such a garbage stock. Yeah, and I know oh, it's yeah. trash. I go, but when I see it go up like that and go up like that, I go, Oh, I know the shorts are 
I basically I look at it and I, and I, I know the shorts are screwed. They're gonna have yeah. they're gonna have to buy, and I'll sell yeah. my shares. <laughs> eventually yeah that's perfect all right awesome um so you start with the, i think that's great though you start with a dip buy which i think a lot of people have that bias of buy low sell high and then you realize in the penny stock niche these companies are all garbage so why don't i sell high and buy low which is just mm -hmm. you know taking basically the opposite side of the trade um something uh i think that looking at some of your trades it looks like you do a lot of otcs over-the-counter trades versus listed stocks mm -hmm. is there do you have a preference between the two so so all the the first few setups i learned like the dip buy the overextended short all of those i did learn on the otc market simply because otcs move a little bit slower so for a newer trader it's a little bit you don't you don't have to see things this quickly you can it's almost maybe a little bit there's a little more training wheels per se that you can just see them move a little bit more fluidly and smoothly versus a NASDAQ that might just go up, down, up, down a million times. And you've got no idea what you're looking at. Um, so yes, the, the, probably the first half or the more overwhelming majority of my, of my journey has been trading OTCs uh, towards the end of 2019. And, and much into this year, I really put a focus on um, learning NASDAQs better. And luckily this year, about uh, probably a third or, or a four tenths of, of my profits have been from NASDAQs. So I'm getting much, much better, but yes, uh, my bread and butter, my, um, you know, most comfort zone is, is definitely trading OTCs. That makes sense. And I think that's interesting that this year has been the, uh, the stuff for the listed. One of the reasons I actually stick exclusively with NASDAQ listed. One of my reasons is I want to make sure every degenerate gambler with a Robinhood account can buy this <laughs> stock. Yeah. So when they, when the squeeze starts and then the FOMO starts and everybody else, I just want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to buy this stock and then I can sell that to them when I'm, mm -hmm. when I'm good and ready. So I think that that's really great. You said OTCs are a bit of training wheels. Um, you know, I remember in the 20, uh, the 2019 conference, Tim Sykes conference, uh, mm -hmm. down in Orlando, I want to say several, I want to say OTC or uh, several people were OTC Jack catalog. I'm actually looking mm -hmm. through my notes that I took there. Um, Jack, Jack catalog mentioned that he was OTC to begin with. Um, I'm trying to see was, uh, Tim, was Tim Gutani was Tim Gutani was as well. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. And, you know, and I think even, even Tim Sykes was back in the day, uh, yeah, which yeah. he, he, he goes either way at this point and he has mm -hmm. full right too. uh, but you said they, they're more train wheels. They move slower. What, can you give us a little bit of just a difference between the OTCs and the NASDAQ? Yeah. And so I, I want to be maybe a little more clear is that when I say, when I say training wheels, I mean more towards how quickly you have to watch a stock because um, there's plenty of ways where OTCs could be more difficult, like in terms of filling your share, filling your order or your trade order, uh, you know, making sure you get out at a certain point because OTCs over the counter, they're much more slower in the fact, not only how they move, but how you get your order executed. So on NASDAQ, I can send an order in, my order is going to go to a computer and the computer is going to fill me or put my order on the market with within a fraction of a second, like immediately. OTCs, my order actually will go to a market maker. It will go to a physical person on the other end of the screen of the, of the market and, and try to fill my order for me. And so most times on, on very liquid OTCs, it's not a big deal. It takes maybe a second or two versus you know a fraction of a second on NASDAQ. But sometimes on OTCs, it can take five, 10, 15 seconds. So, and in the heat of the market and the heat of a stock moving, those seconds feel like forever. Uh, and so 
it's it's a little more it's i say it's training wheels because you're if you're not in a otc you're able to see it move more fluidly and you don't have to think so quickly on making a rash decision you can kind of give yourself a few more seconds but then again it's also a little more difficult where you need to make sure you're going to get filled in a, in, a, in a reasonable time and so some ways to do that is i'll put my order my buy or sell order a few cents above or below the best ask or bid to give myself that little wiggle room of okay the, the market maker taking my order should have plenty of options to fill me on these particular prices versus nasdaq if i want to get filled on the bid or the ask i can just hit it right away immediately because it's going to get filled within you know half a fraction of a second um that's like the key difference for sure okay great one thing i've noticed actually and i think it's it's good that you brought this up um i feel like i'm learning a lot in this conversation because i just don't trade the otcs but i have you know i i have in the past um, and I always noticed that, like, it took a while. Like, I'd send, you know, NASDAQ, yeah, I send my order in, it gets filled. I either have it or I don't, you know? It's like, mm -hmm. it's instantaneous. And uh, with the OTCs, yeah, I'll send it in, and it'll get, you know, it'll take forever, and then the price isn't, I'm like, that's not the price I saw, but, you know, <laughs> that's where I got filled. And yeah. um, one thing that I do as a on the NASDAQ side of things, which I think maybe this might be an advantage to trade in the listed stocks because they're a little more liquid, is I, I use hard stop losses. Mm -hmm. um because i just say okay well you know what i just you know i usually pick a level that's usually in a support or resistance area so i'm pretty sure that i'm gonna get filled within a couple pennies i've only had mm -hmm. one yeah of all of these i've had one that had some major slippage like a 40 cent slippage other than that i'm usually within a couple of pennies so it really doesn't mm -hmm. make a big difference to me but i noticed that in otcs i couldn't use a stop loss the same way where mm -hmm. i put a stop loss in and then all of a sudden I'd get filled like four or five cents. I mean, below, a, you know, a 30 cent stock, which would really right. just, you know, destroy the whole trade for you. Even when you're like, oh, I'm just going to hundred dollars. And then you get stopped out and you're down $250. Mm -hmm. So I, I, for, I, for what you were giving me here, I think it actually made it clear of why the OTCs, why that works the way it does. Because mm -hmm. especially if I have a stop market in the, uh, in the NASDAQ and the listed, I said it, there's always a bid. There's always a bid for it to get filled at. Mm -hmm. And in the OTCs, you're right. If the, so if the market maker says, oh, look at this market order. We're just going <laughs> to just shove this down here at the bottom at 15 oh, cents. Yeah. Uh, you know, when he hit his he hit his stop at 20 cents. <laughs> right, right. And that, that's where that's where it's I, I, I want to caution using training wheels because it's it's a gift and a curse. It's 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 good to learn from and watch. But then once you start trading them, you need to be aware of that of that discrepancy and that inefficiency to either a trade it more properly or for me i i will take i wouldn't say less risk but i will acknowledge the fact that it might take me a few cents either or which way to get filled so i will account for that so that way worst case if i don't get filled where i want you know the loss isn't too much bigger because i've already accounted for that that potential slippage to, to happen perfect well all right so you've talked a lot about otcs and shorting not every brokerage does that well we mm -hmm. are geared towards new traders people that are new to the market I know a lot of people are out there with their first Robinhood account. They can't trade the OTCs. They can't do any shorting. Is there a preferred mm -hmm. broker that you use for these things? Yes. Uh, so uh, the broker I started shorting with and still have today is Interactor Brokers. Uh, they will allow you to trade OTCs and they will allow you to short OTCs. Uh, more, uh, Tim, Tim Sykes calls them high network bro brokers, brokers that require at least $30,000 minimum to trade with, like, uh, like Cobra, uh, SpeedTrader, CenterPoint. Uh, those also allow you to trade OTCs as well. Um, besides those, I think Trade Zero does too, but I haven't used them. Um, yeah, E-Trade doesn't let you short OTCs. Uh, I believe TD Ameritrade doesn't either. So it's like half do, half don't. Um, it's all about you know 
do you have the capital to fund those more expensive brokers? Um, if not, you have to just unfortunately grow your account with, with the other ones that are available to you. Okay. And interactive brokers is actually fairly accessible. I know they think, mm -hmm. I want to say a $10,000 minimum they have. I, I know when I first started, it was 10,000, but if you were under the age of believe 25, you could start with a $3,000 minimum, but now they have um, IB pro and IB light. And I believe light allows you to open up a very low minimum account. It's very like maybe 500 to $2,000, very small amount. Okay. Very good. I think interactive brokers is probably one of the most uh, better known. A lot of, you know, professional mm -hmm. traders do use it and it's an, it's a very accessible resource. They do have uh, commission free trading at this point. So there's really mm -hmm. no reason. I mean, everyone talks about Robin hood and this, like, well, I don't pay for anything. I go, well, uh, you do because you know, even, even I use a lot of uh, TD Ameritrade. I use think or swim just because I'm longing NASDAQ. So it does everything I need to do, mm -hmm. but just those little quarter of a pennies that I get here and there, you know, Robin hood keeps those quarters of a pennies. So yeah, <laughs> you know, I think it's always interesting to know who exactly you're dealing with. And yeah, mm -hmm. kind of the, the reputation of them and, you know, interactive brokers has been around for a long time and I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of, of interactive brokers as well. So uh, that is something we'll post a note to that in the, uh, in the show notes for sure. Um, so we've talked a little bit about OTCs. We've talked a little about dip buying, shorting. So I did, I have my, my official notebook that I, I took notes with at the 20, uh, 2019 conference. conference. One of the, the, the main comment I made here for Kyle Williams, because you were talking a lot about shorting. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't take a lot of notes because I don't short. I just, you know, like you were saying earlier, you got to find what works for you. You can't chase every, every, uh, every shiny, every shiny object. Yeah, object, there. yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so, but one of the things you said that I wrote down here, self-doubt is self-destructive. Mm. Do, yeah. do you, where, do you know, I don't know if that was even one of your like signature quotes, but you said that and it stuck with me. Can you speak to that at all about just kind of the psychology that you have going into the market each day? Yeah. Uh, so that, that reminds me back to when I, when I mentioned I took, you know, 15 losses in a row, it's so easy to be in that because every, I think every trader is going to have some form of streak like that, where they're just going to nonstop losing, uh, feel like they're not getting anywhere. Their accounts now to new lows. Uh, that's natural. And that probably should happen. The, the traders who make money immediately and like are profitable from the get go, I'm, I'm generally worried about because their pain will come eventually. And it's probably going to be much worse than if you have it in the beginning. And so when you go through that, or not when I went through that, I would catch myself in these like moments of uh, despair of like, you suck, like all this negative uh, doubt. And it was, and it was, it became so unhealthy. Right. And I think it's so easy for people to do that, not only in trading, but just in life when something doesn't go your way. And I think the best thing you could have, at least I realized is that that's just like a voice. That's not you. That's not why I'm here. That's not what I'm trying to accomplish. And just telling myself I suck doesn't do anything, right. It doesn't benefit me in any way or help me in any way to become a better trader. And so I, I quickly realized uh, being conscious about that voice and, and really almost, almost, it's almost like having a feeling a little bit crazy and like talking with yourself. So whenever I told myself like you suck or, you know, you're not trading well, or this isn't going to work trading like this, I'll be like, like, yes, somewhat true, but, but like, you're wrong. Like I'm going to, I'm going to take a different approach here. I know I can solve this problem or I can more positive reinforcement rather than beating yourself up. Um, it's been a huge, huge, you know, constant um just drive for me to keep doing that because if i just kept beating myself up i definitely wouldn't wouldn't be here today for sure 
I think it says something about your your mental perseverance, the fact that you were able to take 15 losses and then come back. I think, you know, a lot of people might come to the market and, and that's why they end up leaving is they take 15 losses in a row and they go, well, this this market can't be beaten. And they just, you know, they just leave and they walk out and they're, mm-hmm. you know, and that and that's where it ends for them. But I think it takes from what I've definitely noticed that it takes a certain amount of mental perseverance. Uh, to continue through to kind of find the light on the other side because there is going to be there is going to be bad times. Um, do you have trading goals? You know, this has popped in my head. I get asked this sometimes, mm-hmm. like, "Oh, what's your what's your daily goal?" And I don't have one. I think it's ridiculous to have a yeah. daily goal. But do you have uh, trading goals right now? Are you looking for you know ten million dollars and you retire, or where what's next for Kyle Williams? Uh, yeah, in terms, in terms of trading goals, I really don't, I don't like it either. I don't like the idea of, of having an expectation to make a certain amount every day. Cause the longer I've been in trading, the real, the more I've realized like I can make nothing for, for X amount of time and then make one trade. And that would be my whole month. Uh, so I really don't worry about that. Like I, I really like, I rather get paid or trading is you're getting paid for your opportunity, not for your time. And so I really don't like attaching you know, each every day I should make this much. Cause that's really, a t- it's really just going back to a regular nine to five of like, I'm getting paid so much per hour. And I don't, even though that's, that's safe and more secure, but it's like, when you come to trading, I just don't think that's the right way to think about it. Cause it could lead you to forcing trades. Like, Oh, I'm only up $500 today. I need to be up a thousand to stay with my goal. It's just, I don't, I'm not a fan of that. Um, but in terms of big picture, I mean, I, I certainly plan on trading as long as I possibly can for the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. But I, in terms of profits, I mean, uh, I guess b- back to in the early stages, when I was making money first starting out, it wasn't necessarily enough to live off of quite yet. And when I started making money, living off of enough money to live off of, it still wasn't a whole ton, right? It was as much as I would have made in, a, in like a first nine to five out of college. And I thought to myself, you know, if I got offered a job that would pay me more, would I take it? And I, I said, no, because I genuinely enjoy trading so much as it is that really the money doesn't necessarily matter. Of course, I have to, I have to support myself. If I'm making like no money. Of course I have to get a job, but I realized if I could just, I wouldn't say get by, but if I could just do enough and be profitable, uh, the money wouldn't be so much an issue anymore. Like I enjoy it so much. So for me, it's like, I, I'll continue to be here. I want to continue to better. And part of it's like a game, like, uh, this is kind of the gift and curse of trading where, you get really good, you can make a lot of money. But if you get really good, now all of a sudden now the money feels like a points. It's not, you kind of, so for example, uh, two or three weeks ago, I made like $4,000. My best, my best day of, of September so far, I made $4,000 in a day. And I remember feeling disappointed. <laughs> I remember, I remember feeling like, man, I just did not trade well today. Even though I made really good money, just the, the, the game that was played that day was very poorly executed by my, by me. So it's like, uh, in terms of goals, it's really, I just want to keep getting better. And I think getting better, the money will come. So it's really, there's no money goals. It's really being the best trader and, and increasing size and kind of playing that game better o- over time. So, so out of curiosity, I know you're, you're trading quite a bit here. Do you, do you have any money like, you know, in safer, maybe invest investments or less risky, you know, like a, you know, a traditional mutual fund that you started off your life, you know, with? Yes. Uh, so I don't, unfortunately, this is where, this is also like a given a curse where for me trading so much, I feel like I've learned a lot about the markets in general and what's going on specifically in this year with printing money and the fed and, and all this. So I, I'm very unfortunately biased to want to like 
own the market, even though that's hundred percent, like long-term, that's what I should be doing. Um, I definitely have put a plan, a set plan in place to start doing that, uh, over the next couple of years. Um, I do have, uh, I guess it's kind of a, an untraditional investment of, of using life insurance as like a, like a safe haven, not a safe haven, but a second like bank account that earns me interest, but isn't, I'm using it for like actual, like for like my life insurance policy is for me, not for my death kind of thing. That's a whole different strategy. Um, I have someone there. Um, I have even, unfortunately I have a you know, more speculative investment in a couple of cryptocurrencies, very small, like minuscule amount just to, to play with there. Um, but other than that, yeah, no, I've, I've tried to keep, unfortunately, like back to what I was saying about being frugal, I've kept a lot of money in my accounts as much as possible for the fact that I know if the more I have, the more I can keep. But as I get older, right, I'm only 24. So I, I kind of have rationalized to be able to take that risk. But as I get older, like as I start pushing 30 and having a family, that's a hundred percent the priority now to start moving money into more safer investments. hundred percent. Sure. Is yeah. There, just curious. Is there a Mrs. Williams <laughs> yeah. in mind since we're on that topic? Uh, no, no, I've been single for, for a fair amount now. So yeah. Do you, do you ever so, go on dates and they, they ask you what you do for a living and you get a yeah, fun so, story to tell? Yeah. Unfortunately I've had a few dates where, where the, that day of the day, I made like a crap ton of money and I just have to like, keep it, uh, like a, a secret. Like I can't, I can't, like I've had like my best day ever on, on a day I had a date before. And I just kind of, she asked me how my day was at work. I'm like, Oh, it was good. It was fine. <laughs> um, but um, no, it, it, in the beginning of the, of, the, of the journey, I was very, I wouldn't say insecure, but I, when I would tell people about what I did, I would be looked at like I had like six heads, you know? Um, I've kind of gotten over that now because if they really want to challenge me, I could be like, yeah, I make more money than whatever. I, I don't kind of want to come off that way, but it's, it's a little bit more, a little confidence boost to be like, you can down me all you want if you don't like it. But like, but when I first started out, I wasn't making much money. So I was kind of, Oh, I, I do this thing where I try to do this. And I kind of like worked my way around it and didn't really say it so much, but, but now I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident. I'll tell them like, Oh, I, I trade stocks, you know, just keep it casual. And then if they want to learn more, they can ask me more, but I just kind of keep it, keep it surface level until there, there know, was a story I, I read about a very successful trader. I can't think of who it was off the top of my head. But he was getting married and his in-laws were kind of giving him a hard time. I think he was young, you know, in his 20s, just like you are. Mm -hmm. And his in-laws were like, well, are you going to find something a little more serious here? And so, you know, he was like, well, no, I'm, you know, I'm doing all right where I'm at. And so him and his fiance started to combine finances, you know, getting married and all. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, well, maybe we should buy this house. And he's like, okay, fine. And so he's like, well, how much? Is it? It's like $500,000. And he's like, all right. Well, he's like, he just pulls out his checkbook and starts writing a check for the 500 <laughs> for the house. And it's like, and I think the in-laws stopped giving him a hard time after that. Because right, just, right. You know, he's like, yeah, but he also, he lived, he lived very modestly. You know, mm -hmm. he wasn't driving Ferraris and everything. He wasn't showboating. So I, I, I think it's interesting kind of the misconceptions yeah, uh, that, that people yeah. can have out there. Mm -hmm. And that, that was, that was very similar to my dad. When I, when I first started trading, my mom was very supportive from the beginning, but my dad was very skeptical to the point where he, he really was not going to believe it until he saw it. And so, you know, I like my first profitable month in like, uh, I think it was like July, 2016, like one of my first profitable months ever, I made like 200 bucks and he, he totally laughed. He just, and, it, and he was never, it was never disrespectful, but it's like, my dad's just the jokester he is. And so he just, all right, Kyle, congrats. Like you made 200, you know? Um, but now, month. yeah, <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, but now being where I'm at now, you know, I, I, I we're open about how much we our, our finances together. And so he, he's realized like, Oh crap, like, uh, you're <laughs> doing way better than I was doing in, at 24 years old. So he's, he's like full on board now. He like brags to his coworkers. So 
Yeah. Did, did he give exactly. you any like, he's like, please trade my money? Or have you had people come to you like, oh man, go do this for me? Yeah, yeah. I've gotten I've gotten requests to like have money be given, but I, I explained to him like legally and, and, and paperwork wise, like it's just so much effort and work on my end that it would be, it would be years out before I even was able to do that. So. Yeah. Well, great. Well, I, I really appreciate you going over all this uh, with us today, just kind of your journey, where you're at now. Uh, it's incredible how far you've come, especially just since, you know, since I talked to you last year, you mm-hmm. know, and you're, your four times your, your profit is yeah four times where it was last year. So congratulations. Good on you, you. And especially being 24 years old. Uh, that's awesome. So really a serious congratulations to you. Thank you. Appreciate um, it. Is there anywhere that, uh, that people can find you if they want to get in touch with you that uh, you want to yeah. offer up here? Uh, so I, I do have, I do make monthly recap videos on YouTube, uh, where I go over my months, uh, and that, that's on, so on YouTube, uh, there's a lot of Kyle Williams is, but if you type in Kyle Williams, just trading in the search bar, you know, you should see my face and, and my reviews there, um, on Twitter, um, at trader Kyle C, uh, no dashes, no numbers, anything, just trader Kyle C, uh, Twitter there, you can DM me there. Uh, and that's pretty much the two places most trading, um, involved. For, and, for questions and stuff. And we'll post show notes. We'll, we'll post links to that in the show notes so that way you can't screw it up. Cool. All right. So the last segment, you know it's coming because you listened to our podcast before, but Brian Brian brings out our uh, our question of the day. And I have not heard it before. You haven't heard it. We just have to, we whatever right. Brian uh, came up with, it What's may up? or may not be traded relating. Well, related. <laughs> for this week's question, I, Michael and I have talked a little bit about this, and this has come up in Michael's stream a little bit. But you know, these SPACs, these special purpose acquisition corporations, have been kind of the, the mm. hot new thing in the market. Is this a fad? Is this something you think is going to stay, or is this just opportunity? Do you have any thoughts about SPACs? Because that seems to be in the popular zeitgeist right now. Yeah, I've I, I kind of got my attention to them when I start. Yeah, for some reason I saw them all over social media, and I got a couple emails about them, and I was like, wait, what is this? And then so I, I still am not. Unfortunately, fully educated enough to know exactly what they are, but just from the first impression by how much they're being um, almost marketed in a way, the, the amount of how quickly I'm hearing them, it sounds a lot like there's just a big story, a big hype-ish thing. Um, only time will tell if, if they if they stay relevant or they stay legitimate. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, I, I don't know enough to, to fully make a, a judgment call on it. All right, I'm going to jump in there. Some of my writing assignments have been on SPACs. I can't link you specifically to them because I am a ghostwriter. Very scary um, <laughs> ghostwriter, so I can't uh, I can't. It's the Halloween, you know, it's coming up. So I can't divulge exactly who I've been writing for or anything like that. But I have had to write on these things recently, which means I have to do research, which means I gain the knowledge. So it's, you know, it's a win-win for me because I actually get paid for it and I get to gain the knowledge. Um, but SPACs have actually, they've been around for decades, you know, um, Virgin Galactica last year was kind of the first major SPAC mm-hmm. to, to really, you know, get in the, uh, in the public eye. Um, but besides that, you know, they've been around for decades. It's nobody's used them that much, but they do offer a unique opportunity because most people, you know, early investors in Uber, you and I could not go be an early 2016 investor in Uber. Um, but the SPACs give you an opportunity to be an early investor in a company. Unfortunately, you don't get to know the details. So you really don't know necessarily who you're dealing with and who they're going to acquire. So the, the, how a SPAC works is they have an initial public offering where they sell stock and they say, oh, we're going to go acquire an electric vehicle company. And so then 
they sell stock and that's just, that's all you know. So you buy stock at whatever, you know, valuation you think is going to be good for you. And then they'll, they'll take that several billion dollars. And within two years, they go and find a electric vehicle company that they think is good. And, you know, case example is, uh, Nikola. So they mm. went and acquired Nikola and it was a, you know, the big merger and it was this big thing. And they were going to take on Tesla and this, that, and the other. And then, you know, of course in the past couple of weeks, we discovered that their, their vehicles don't even run. <laughs> and they roll, they roll down hills. Yeah. <laughs> they, they look great rolling down a hill. Um, so I, I guess that's just a little bit of education on them, kind of how they work. But I think they're a little bit of a pump and dumpy type thing where, you know, they're legitimate vehicles. They really are legitimate vehicles, pun intended, uh, or, <laughs> you know, as an investment vehicle for taking a company public, it does give mom and pops investors, you know, retail investors a chance to get in on a company early, but there's a, it's a double-edged sword because you don't necessarily know exactly what you're getting and you don't necessarily know who is getting that money. Like it's protected in terms of insurance and SEC and everything. Like you're not just going to, that's just going to take your money and disappear. But yeah. whether or not they're going to do due diligence and make sure, like, I don't know, the vehicles run before they buy the company, it leaves you with a kind of a bad taste. It could leave you with a bad taste in your mouth. So it'll be interesting just to see at this point. The next step is will, will investors, will traders now go and say, okay, we're willing to give more people a chance on this given you know everyone just got burned on nicola whether you know like i said well, the, did they really get burned i mean if you got in early you might out of you might have done really well <laughs> and you may have it's just there's definitely a, a stinky rat there you know there's an element of fraud <laughs> to the whole thing it does seem a little pumpish but you know it, it is interesting there so like a few of the examples that you mentioned there's nicola but there's also DraftKings was one uh, space the other one um was it's those potato chips you know they had a one and then there's a few other electric vehicle ones, but I, I think it's interesting. You know, you're, we often talk about Bill Ackman, you know, kind of a famous figure. He has one and they don't even know what he's acquiring. And yet it's his, his is going up. So there's no idea. There's no underlying asset. It's just faith in Bill Ackman is causing the, his, his, the value of his acquisition corporation to rise. It's, it's just, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It is. I mean, there, a lot of it's just writing pure emotion. I think, I think it'll be around for a while, but I'm just not sure if I think more, you know, if we could get burned with Nikolai, I think we can get burned in other places where I think investors could burn. So I think they're going to, they might come back and be a little more skeptical where they might, everyone might not be as speculative as they are right now. That's, you know, but you know, but you never know. Anything could happen. The, this market 2020 has defied all expectation, all odds. Yeah. Right, we've had bear markets, bull markets, squid markets, you name it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Different shapes for kangaroo, kangaroo market, whatever they say about it, yeah. Yes. All the memes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's that, that's my question of the day. So really appreciate you having you here, Kyle. Uh, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's been awesome. All right. Well, this has been Trading for Keeps. I'm Brian. And this is Michael. Thanks for joining us. We'll have another podcast out next week.